You are now listening to the April 22nd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the Fruit of Spirit sermon and equipping the saints. First, let's begin with the Fruit of Spirit. Hello, this is Terry with the Fruit of the Spirit, a time in which we confess our hearts to the Lord. In last week's Fruit of the Spirit, we considered the first characteristic, love. Today, we are going to visit the second characteristic, joy. We could also think of it as rejoicing. The thing about joy is that it works from within. When we look at the Bible, we see that the joy Jesus had did not stem from a situation, but it flowed from the inside of Jesus himself. In John chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. In John chapter 16, verse 22, Jesus promised, Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. While the death on the cross brought Jesus unimaginable pain, Jesus gladly endured it on the cross, knowing it was the way to fulfill God's will. That means the joy Jesus had was not driven by his worldly circumstances. It came from within and was something much deeper. For Jesus, it was for the will and glory of God, even if it brought him fear and pain. We see that Jesus was joyful regardless of the situation. That means joy that is not situation-dependent but God-focused is the true joy that was described as one of the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Then how can we have the same joy that Jesus had, no matter what situation we may be in, whether good or bad? We can do that by turning our face away from the problems and situations that make us feel afraid and helpless and place our sights firmly on Jesus our Lord, the source of the joy. Then we will have our sights and mind on God and how God is. When we are focused on God, we will not despair, even in trials, but rather we will be able to experience true joy because of His tender loving kindness and the fullness of His love for us. It is easy for us to resent and complain when things don't go our way, but we need to make a conscious choice to become joyful by cutting off resentment and complaints. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 11, God spoke to the Israelites who were complaining. The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? And this is recorded in Psalms chapter 106, verses 24 and 25. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe in his word, but grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. God is telling us that resenting and complaining is the same as despising God himself. Would you not agree that we should not do anything that would cause us to despise God who saved us and cares for us? We need to make a willful determination to be joyful 
despite difficult situations. To do that, we must remember those in the Bible who are strong in the faith, like Abraham, David, Paul, and Jesus. In addition, we need to remind ourselves the kindness and unchanging love that God has shown to us in our lives. One often gets confused between joy and happiness. They are not the same. Happiness is a feeling we have when things go our way or we get the results we want. In this regard, happiness is situation-dependent and is a feeling tied to worldly affairs. But true joy is not related to situations, and it surpasses the happiness that the world gives. True joy is what we receive as a gift from the Holy Spirit of God. The joy through the Holy Spirit comes from Jesus Christ the Lord who resides in us. It can sustain us from inside. Beloved listeners, I hope we will be able to turn our faces away from problems and worldly situations and focus our sights on the Lord so that the joy of Jesus can fill our hearts.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Malachi Tresler of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Anguish Over Unbelief. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Malachi. Uh, last September, we started walking through the book of Romans together. We covered chapters 1 through 3 last fall, and then chapters 4 through 8 in the spring of this year, and we finished at the end of Romans 8 in May. And now the plan, Lord willing, is that we'll cover chapters 9 through 11 this fall. Here's the outline. Let me show you the outline slide. Just two points this morning from the text. First, condemnation remains for those who are cut off from Christ in verses 1 through 3. Second, God's gracious privileges don't guarantee faith in Christ. We'll see that in verses 4 and 5. Father, would you help us this morning to understand your word in a way that will be uh, an encouragement, uh, in a way that will bring life, zeal for the gospel, zeal for the souls of others. Father, we need your Holy Spirit to make that happen for us this morning. We know that you will help us. We ask for that help now in Jesus' name. Amen. First, Condemnation remains for those who are cut off from Christ. We see this in verses 1 through 3, and I'll just read those verses for us again. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul was in deep sorrow deep anguish, deep pain, deep grief, deep sadness and distress over the unbelief of his brothers, his kinsmen according to the flesh, as he calls them, his countrymen. Paul was, of course, himself a Jew. He was Jewish by ethnicity. And yet, because he was seen as an apostle who was sent to the Gentile nations with the gospel, some might have thought that he turned his back on the Jewish people. And so Paul now is speaking in very strong clear terms here to try to communicate his affection for the Israelite brothers and sisters that he has according to the flesh. He is speaking the truth, he says. He is not lying. Notice that he distinguishes in the text, he distinguishes between two inner voices, if you will, his conscience and the testimony of the Holy Spirit. His conscience is an internal, subjective awareness of what's right and wrong. Everyone no matter what, has a conscience, bearing some sort of rare disorder, you have a conscience. The conscience is a natural ability to recognize right from wrong. It's an awareness of whether or not you're living up to your own moral standards, sort of internally, subjectively. But we know that because of the effects of sin, our consciences are not always calibrated rightly. So we can't trust them fully. We should obey our consciences whenever we have opportunity we need to obey it, but we also need to recognize that they need to be calibrated. Sometimes our conscience is too sensitive. It can be overly responsive, or it can be seared and unresponsive. So the conscience can be uh, untrustworthy to some degree. Jiminy Cricket's advice to Pinocchio to always let your conscience be your guide is only as good as the conscience that you have. For instance, before he was born again, Paul looked on approvingly when a man was stoned to death as a Christian. 
But here, his conscience testifies with him in the spirit that that is now, now that he's born again, now that he loves God, loves his law, he loves his promises, and the Holy Spirit now is within Paul, renewing and recalibrating his conscience. As a Christian, this is just an important thing to keep in mind, and we'll talk about this more in coming weeks or months in the book of Romans. Paul has a conscience. He knows that it needs to be corrected according to the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Now that he's born again, now that he knows that he loves God, he loves his people, he loves his laws, his promises, Paul is recognizing that his conscience must necessarily be recalibrated according to the Holy Spirit. So we're going to talk more about the conscience later in upcoming weeks. Notice, though, that in the text, Paul doubles down on what he said here. He says, I am speaking the truth, and then he switches it around and he says, I am not lying. So really emphasizing this point. He has very great sorrow. He has unceasing anguish. This is very strong, emotional language that Paul is using. Why is Paul so worked up? And when you first look at this, you might think, Paul, maybe just settle down a little bit. What is so upsetting, Paul? Paul, I believe, is worked up because he knows that condemnation remains for those who are cut off from Christ. We love Romans 8.1, brilliant passage, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's the sort of thing you might even want to put on a mug. But the inversion of that sentence is also true. It's very troubling. And that's what Paul's so upset about. Those who are not in Christ Jesus do face condemnation. Notice that what Paul prays or wishes, this is another way to put that translation there, he prays or wishes that he could be cut off from Christ in place of his brothers. The word behind cut off in our translations there, that word cut off is actually anathema. It's a very strong word. Cut off might not fully explain the weight of what Paul is trying to communicate here. It's not like getting cut off in traffic. To be cut off in this sense is actually to be cursed, to be headed for destruction. It means to stand under condemnation before God. It means headed for hell. We know that Paul is being hyperbolic. We know that Paul is being hypothetical here. And we know this because we've just read Romans 8. There's like two verses before this. He told us there is no way to be separated from the love of God in Christ. It's not possible. Paul has not forgotten that doctrine that he just taught and told and affirmed moments ago. And yet, experientially, there is something Sometimes that stirs in the heart. I think parents might know this feeling. When you see your child suffer, there's something that rises up in you. And you would absolutely be willing to take his or her place and bear the suffering in their place. Even though it's not possible, the impulse drives up within you. I think that sort of gets to the sympathy that is descriptive of what Paul is going for here. Paul has a great love for his fellow countrymen, his kinsmen, according to the flesh. Of course, we know that there was a point at which Paul himself, who was a Jew, was cut off from Christ. He knows, Paul knows experientially what it's like to reject Christ. There is a willing blindness that is involved in rejecting the gospel. He himself was trying to be a faithful Jew by persecuting Jesus' followers. He once was lost in darkness night and thought he knew the way. Paul's experience of regeneration 
of being born again by the Holy Spirit from above, recognizing the truth of the gospel, the true identity of who Jesus is as the Christ, that was a shift in his complete understanding of reality. The sweetness of God's amazing saving grace was so real to Paul. And for him to know that there were others who are just like he was at one point in his own past as a part of his testimony, to know that there are others who are still like that crushes him, causes him deep anguish. Some of you know that anguish. When he says great sorrow and unceasing anguish, you don't think that that's strange, you get it. You just sort of intuitively you understand because you have your own kinsmen, according to the flesh, who not yet have embraced the gospel. Unbelieving family members that you wish you could just sort of splash with cold water and wake them up to the necessity of embracing Christ as Savior. That helplessness that we feel that Paul describes here ought to drive us in desperate prayer, dependent prayer, to God. This passage really was convicting to me uh, as I slowed down to read it carefully over this past weeks. Just meditating on this concept, I confess that I all too often don't share the same level of grief and anguish over other people, over the disbelief of others. Paul was in anguish because he knew that the gospel is true and eternity is long. What a sobering gut check that is. Sometimes we only think of Christianity as being helpful. It has a spiritual or therapeutic benefit to it. Maybe it can give you a peace of mind that's helpful in this day and age. You might hear people say, well, that's great. That's nice. If you have embraced Christianity, I'm glad that that's helpful to you. As if it didn't matter. The reason that it's helpful is because it's true. If it wasn't true, it wouldn't be helpful. This is how it works. Someone might say, it's nice that you're a Christian. If it helps you, you should believe it. That's great. But of course, we don't believe things because we, we think they're helpful to us. We believe things because we think they're true, objectively true. We tend to shrink the gospel down to our present age, even accidentally. We sometimes are told that Jesus died not to appease the wrath of God, but to show us how important we are, to help us reach our full potential as, as humans, or that Jesus died and rose again that we might sort of enjoy material wealth or health in this life here on earth, here and now. But this, this passage would make no sense if that was what Paul was trying to argue for. What sort of anguish would be stirred up over someone just sort of missing out on stink, like peace of mind? Would he be that stirred up? Would he be in unceasing sorrow because they just happened to choose a different religion, but really it's just a matter of taste and all roads lead to God in the end? No. Paul is shook because he knows that this life is not all there is. The here and now is not all that exists. It is appointed once to men to die, and after this, the judgment. The exuberant freedom of knowing that there is no condemnation in Christ, as we see in Romans 8.1, is contrasted by the crushing blow of knowing that condemnation remains on those who reject Jesus. It'll just be helpful to keep in mind as we're going through the rest of Romans 9 and following that Paul has a very high view of God's sovereignty. 
He has a very high view of God's providential orchestration of all of history, and yet that does not cause him to be passionless about the salvation of other people. Please notice that. Please keep that in mind as we're walking through the rest of these chapters. Paul does not have an apathy. He is not resigned. He is passionate, particularly as it relates to Israel. So we'll keep reading in verses 4 through 5. Second, notice from the text, God's gracious privileges don't guarantee faith in Christ. Verses 4 and 5, I'll read those again. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. The Israelites belong to God in a distinct way from all of the other nations. We're just thinking back to the Old Testament, okay? They were given unique privileges. One commentator notes and says it this way, I think it's helpful. They were God's chosen vessel for the plan of salvation. And that plan of salvation ultimately would culminate in Jesus, in his birth, in his person, in his work. Notice that Paul lists off six privileges there in these passages. Notice them with me. Adoption, glory, covenants, law, worship, and promises. We're just going to think about each of them quickly in turn. First, adoption. God spoke of the corporate people of Israel as his adopted firstborn son in the Old Testament. In Exodus 4, he talks about his adopted son, Israel, his firstborn son, Israel. Also in Deuteronomy, also in Jeremiah, this is a repeated theme. Israel was his adopted nation in that sense. Glory. This one's a little more confusing because we know that God doesn't give his glory to another. We read about this in Isaiah. So in what sense can we say that God gave his glory or his glory belongs to the nation of Israel? I think it probably refers to the visible manifestation of God's glory that they would have experienced and seen as he led them out of slavery in Egypt. They had seen with their eyes a shadow of God's manifest glory through a shining cloud, that glory cloud, as it had accompanied them out of their slavery. They also would have seen God's glory descend upon the temple. When the temple was dedicated, they saw God's glory descend upon it. They would have witnessed that in a distinct way from other nations. This is something unique that was given to Israel. The blessing of God's glory, then, in this sense, is likely just that God's, God's glory was revealed to them in unique ways, which was distinct from the other nations. Law. Giving of the law. This is fascinating, too. Laying down the law might not sound like a blessing. But God revealing his law to Israel at Mount Sinai, with just thinking even just narrowly of those Ten Commandments, was an act of grace and mercy. Paul dealt with this just earlier in chapter 7 of Romans. The law is holy and righteous and good, is what Paul says. It means that we are not left to our own sinful minds to decide or discover what is right or wrong. He hasn't left us alone. The Creator, who designed his creation graciously revealed it to us so that we might know the benefits of living in alignment with creation as he has made it. That law, which was so merciful, was given distinctly to Israel. 
worship. This refers to the sacrificial system, the worship of the covenantal worship system with all of its sacrifices and the tabernacle, the temple rituals that it would have included. God graciously prescribed for Israel how to show him thanks and how to find forgiveness. This is a gift that God gave to Israel. The drama that they would have experienced in in the liturgies, the practices that they would have gone through in the temple, all of these things would have been a gift to them. That drama were tangible, visible expressions that they could touch and see and feel, ways that they would understand the heinousness of sin and the gloriousness, the beauty of holiness. They would learn uniquely about the possibility of restoration with God. That was a distinct blessing. Other nations didn't know that. Israel alone knew that blessing. The promises. This is a much bigger category, of course, almost a a catch-all sort of category. God promised a lot to Israel. We think, though, just sort of narrowly about the promises that God made to Abraham, who was the father of Israel. We remember that God promised Abraham to make him a blessing to the nations, that he would be a blessing and be blessed. He promised to, to give him many descendants. He promised to give him land. But the promises that were made to Israel would have included much more than that. One of the promises that we've read about in the book of Isaiah recently, one of those promises that was made to Israel was that an anointed servant would one day come and free them. Free them not just from their bondage to captor, a physical captor, but he would come and free them from bondage to sin. And this promised person, this servant, was called the Messiah. God also promised to pour out the Holy Spirit on his people. So you've got the Messiah, the promised Messiah. You've got the promised Holy Spirit. Of course, the Holy Spirit promised multiple times just in the book of Isaiah. It's in Ezekiel. It's in Joel. God is going to pour out his Holy Spirit upon his people. So we would want to include in those promises made to Israel, the Messiah and the Holy Spirit is an important part of those promises. Paul goes on and he says, to them belong the patriarchs. Patriarchs just means fathers. Those heads of the family. We usually think of the patriarchs as being Uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Joseph, those are the patriarchs of Israel, those folks that we read about in the book of Genesis. He chose those flawed men, those sinful men, to establish the ethnic line of Israel. And then, of course, finally, Paul notes that the Christ comes from that line. Notice how these blessings, these blessings or privileges that have been given to Israel belong to Israel. Notice that as you're reading through this. To them belongs these things. But notice that Christ is different. He doesn't belong to Israel. He is from Israel. Christ doesn't belong to Israel. He is from Israel. And Paul emphasizes this by saying he is God over all. So that that ethnic line of Israel that was cultivated by God through the patriarchs, brought throughout Old Testament redemptive history, Ultimately, it came forward and would be fulfilled in the person of Christ. God himself, through the line of the patriarchs, would take on human flesh. Christ is just the New Testament way of saying that he's the Messiah. So that Old Testament promise about this coming Messiah, it's the Christ. This is the way that you just say it in the New Testament language. 
So Jesus, then, is the fulfillment of all of the messianic promises. All of those promises come to fulfillment in Christ, and that Christ came from within the line of Israel. This is the point that, that Paul is making here, I think, and it's, it's going to be really important to keep this in mind as we go forward in the book of Romans. All of the blessings, all of the privileges that God gave to Israel ultimately pointed towards Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in him. This is 2 Corinthians. So we are adopted as children of God through Christ our brother. This is Romans 8. God revealed his glory in a very ultimate sense, even beyond shadows of clouds and pillars of fire. He revealed his glory in an ultimate sense in and through Jesus. Jesus is the one who fulfills all the obligations of the covenants. He institutes a new and better covenant for those who are united to him by faith. And Jesus fulfilled the law. We know that he fulfilled every jot and tittle of the law. And that changes then, by virtue of our union with him, it changes our relationship to the law. Now we can see the law as a guide towards godliness, not just a measure of judgment. Jesus fulfilled the temple system of worship that was instituted in Israel. All of that was pointing towards this Christ. So all of the promises of God find their yes in him. So there's a very real sense in which Jesus is the true Israel. He is everything Israel represented. He is everything that Israel foreshadowed. That point is going to be helpful as it gets dicey as we go further into the book of Romans, trying to figure out the relationship between Israel, the Gentiles, the church. Remember, Jesus is the true Israel. Notice what this verse says about Jesus, verse 5. It says that Jesus is human. It says that he was born of the line of Israel, according to the flesh. Notice also that it says that Jesus is God over all. So, he is God in the flesh. Now, there's some debate, of course, about how the grammar of the original language is structured here, but throughout church history, historians, theologians, commentators, even most translations that you will find and read agree that what this verse is saying is that Jesus Christ is God over all. So that, but really, this isn't new to Paul. This is really just a reemphasis of something he said in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 of Romans. He said there that Jesus descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. Humanity, deity. This doctrine is called the hypostatic union. It's the hypostatic unions. Jesus is one person with two natures, truly divine, truly human. This is a basic Christian doctrine we must affirm. We must understand. We cannot reject this. We must rightly understand the person of Christ. Well, Israel was given privileges that other nations weren't given. And yet now that fulfillment of those uh, ethnic and cultural traditions and all those practices, all those had come now in Jesus. So the point of all these things was, was pointing to Jesus, and yet many still rejected him. When, according to Paul's thinking, they should have seen Jesus coming from a mile away. They should have run to embrace him. Well, now let's think of that inwardly. We can think about the Jews and their rejection of Jesus Christ. Now think about it inwardly. What privileges have you been given that should help you embrace your faith? What do you think might have been the reasons that Israel didn't embrace Jesus? Pride? 
stubbornness. Maybe this didn't care. It might have been simply indifference. Or maybe it was distraction. Now again, let's turn that inward. What might our reasons for rejecting the gospel be? The privileges that Israel received as a means of grace made their rejection of Christ even more tragic. For those of us who have been raised in a Christian home, these verses say a lot. This should hit pretty hard. Those of us who have grown up in a Christian home, particularly young kids, don't neglect the privileges that you've been given by being brought to church. You should know that I hear testimonies from people pretty consistently who have come to Christ later in life who would have loved to have grown up in the church, who would have loved to have regular exposure to the gospel, who would have loved to have had parents who would be willing to read the Bible with them, So if you're here as a youth, take advantage of that means of grace that God has so graciously given to you. Just because you're born into a family, that does not guarantee that you're going to believe. If your parents are Christians, it's not a guarantee that you're going to be a Christian. That's not how it works. It's not your good works that saved you. It's not your genealogy that saves you. you. It doesn't matter who your daddy is. It's not baptism. It's not whether you regularly fill a pew on Sunday mornings. Salvation is faith alone in Christ alone by grace alone. This is the only way of salvation. It's not by genetics. But you have been given privileges that I hope you take advantage of. May we all appreciate and take advantage of what God has given to us in and through the church, young or old. And may we, with the Christ-like heart of Paul, Invite others to the feast at which we sit. Paul is praying here to be destroyed in the place of God's people. And it sounds a lot like our call to worship text that we heard this morning from Exodus 32. Elliot read it for us earlier. In that passage, just to remind you, Moses is sort of acting as an an intermediator, a mediator between God and his people. We recall that Israel had just engaged in idolatry after having received the covenant. He comes down and he sees that they've made a golden calf. Moses goes back and and intercedes. He mediates on behalf of Israel, God's people. And Moses says, please forgive them. Please forgive your people. Blot me out of your book. That book is the book of life. So he's saying, may I be cut off for the sake of your people. Similar concepts here. If it were possible, I would be willing to be cut off for the sake of your people. But it doesn't work that way, does it? Moses could not be cut off for the sake of Israel. Moses can't withstand the judgment of God. Moses is a finite, sinful human. He can't substitute himself for Israel. Paul, though he would desire to be cut off for the sake of God's people, is a finite, sinful human. Paul could not shed his blood for his fellow kinsmen according to the flesh. It's not how it works. Only someone who is truly righteous, only someone who is truly God and who is truly man, can bridge the gap between a holy God and a sinful humanity. This is why doctrine matters. This is why the hypostatic union comes back into use, doesn't it? There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, 
who is truly God and truly man and can be sacrificially cut off for his people, withstand the judgment and redeem his people. Paul loved his people according to the flesh. And if it was possible, which it is not, he would have been cut off for them. He would have taken on the curse of their unbelief. Jesus, the Messiah, loved his people according to the flesh. And he was cut off for them. This is our sermon text, actually, just a couple weeks ago from Isaiah 53. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. What Moses longed to do, what Paul longed to do, is met in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We know this from the New Testament as well. Galatians 3, 13 to 14. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise, spirit through faith. The curse there is to be cut off, to be to become sin, who knew no sin. That happened in history. It's an objectively true fact. And because it's true, it has implications certainly in this life, but certainly beyond just this life. This passage is a stark reminder to take the gospel seriously. So my invitation to anyone who would hear me, trust in Christ, who was cut off, who took on the curse of your rebellion, or you will be cut off, destined for destruction. It need not be the case. God made a way for us in Christ to be reconciled to our Creator. And for that, He is eternally worthy of blessing and honor and glory. So with the Apostle Paul, may we all have a burden to share this message of salvation from the wrath of God in and person in and through the person of work of Jesus Christ with great love with our, our kinsmen according to the flesh, those in our families, those in our communities. Let's pray.
not see Will because this broken road Prepares your will for me Will I are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. You can download the app for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries by visiting the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store. You can now listen to this week's or past week's programs on your Android or iPhone. Just search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to find it in the store. If you have any questions, please call us at 602 866-8999 or heartandsoul.org at gmail.com The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same that happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. 
But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed. Now, just on a side note, righteous Lot and Noah were taken before the judgment. We see that as the church is removed before God brings forth his day. We are not destined for wrath. But God is not going to let sin and evil go unjudged. He is a God of justice. We see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that you yourselves know full well the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While they were saying peace and safety, everything's fine, it isn't. Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. 2 Thessalonians 2, God will pour out his wrath on sinners who have rejected his son, Jesus. God is declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent because he's fixed a day in which he's going to judge. There's a judgment day. And if you don't repent, you will be judged eternally. You will be destroyed and ruined in eternal fire forever. Jesus is a savior and friend, but he is also the one who will execute judgment on sinners. This great day has not come yet because God, as we will see, is patient, unwilling that any should perish, wanting all to come to repentance. So repent. Turn to the Lord. Confess your sin Call out to Jesus. Believe he died for your sins, paid the price, and rose from the dead. Lord Jesus, save me from your wrath. I deserve your wrath. Save me. False teachers forget the reality that the day of the Lord will come. They mock the reality that the day of the Lord will come. And thus we don't have a motivation in the church to live holy. You won't hear much preaching and teaching about the day of the Lord. The reality of what's going to come, what we should be focused on, what should motivate us towards holy behavior and righteous living. Notice back in our passage, Second Peter chapter 3, we must not allow something to escape our notice. We're being commanded now. Look at verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. Now again, when Peter is commanding, he'll often say, beloved, you're loved in the Lord. You're children of God. You're true believers. God loves you. Don't let this escape your notice. It's for your good. It's for your good. Do not let this one fact escape your notice that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. We are commanded to not let this, NASB says one fact, this one thing, this concept, but spoken in both verses 8 and 9. Don't let this escape your mind. Don't let it happen. It's a command. Don't let it happen. And notice what he says. He says here, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Don't let it escape your notice. Now notice, as we look at this, the words as, or some versions say like. He is not saying with the Lord, one day equals a thousand years. He's saying it is as or like. It's a description. Again, we can use metaphors or whatever it might be to describe things. He ran like a gazelle. He's not a gazelle, but it helps us understand those things. One day is like a thousand years, a thousand years as one day. You see, God is revealing here that he is totally separate from time. He is the God who created the universe. 
And yes, he does enter into human time, which he created. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. He even functions in the context of the time that he has created, but he is not bound by it. Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. There's time. And God is functioning within that time he has created, but he is apart from that time. And this is a pretty amazing statement. When you think of a thousand years, think of a long time. When you think of a day, think of a short time. What God is saying is what we consider short is like a long time, and what we consider long is like a short time. Usually we only take one half of this equation, right? It goes both ways. A day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day. Moses wrote about this in Psalm 90. Turn to Psalm 90. See, God is not bound to our timetable, as some count slowness. He is not bound to what we consider as slow, or what we consider as not coming forth or bringing forth his promises on time or our time. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or thou didst give birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting thou art God. Thou dost turn man back into dust, that they die. And thou dost say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in thy sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. Thou hast swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass which sprouts anew. In the, in the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Towards the evening it fades and withers away. So what's the point? God does not function on our timetable, on the created realities that he has put forth. A day is as a thousand years, a thousand years as a day. And let's keep reading. Notice this is the point, verse 9, back in chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise. What's the promise? The promise of the coming of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, in the context, in judgment, the day of the Lord. He is not slow about his promise, as some count or reckon slowness, but patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. What a tremendous statement. The Lord is not slow. The term slow means hesitant. He is not hesitating whether he is going to fulfill his word or not. As some count slowness or reckon slowness, God is a God of his word. He will fulfill his word. Absolutely. He is not slow, but we shouldn't let this pass our understanding. But he says, but patient in contrast, but patient Toward you. God is patient. The term patient here means long-suffering. God puts up with sin for a long time. And if he came in judgment, he would have to destroy those who are still in their sin. But he is patient, unwilling for any to perish, to be eternally ruined. He is unwilling, not wishing. The term is an interesting term. It's bulamai. It speaks of determination or counsel or a wish or desire. He doesn't determine or desire that any should perish. You say, wait a second, I thought God chooses, doesn't he? Well, yes, he does. God does. We know that. But here we have a side of God which we cannot understand. He doesn't desire any 
to perish. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. No pleasure. God does not take pleasure when someone has rejected Christ and dies and goes to their judgment and eternal destiny. He doesn't take pleasure in that. God does not desire any to perish. This is why it appears as though he is delaying. This is why from our view of time, which is not his view of time, it appears as though he's saying he's coming quickly. Why hasn't he come yet? He is coming quickly. But he does not desire that any should perish, but in contrast for all to come to repentance. If your gospel doesn't have repentance, it's not the gospel. Repent and believe the truth concerning Jesus Christ. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 18. You see, I don't understand how God can choose some and not. We know he does that. But we also know that his offer is to everyone. He is the Savior of all men. First Timothy desires all to be saved. First Timothy 2. God is a gracious God. He is gracious and patient toward you and me. Ezekiel 18. Look at verse 23. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather that he should turn from his ways and live? Look down at verse 31. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you've committed, and make for yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why shall you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore repent and live. Turn from your sin, not in your own power. Acknowledge it. What I am doing, what I am thinking, what I have done, what I have thought is wrong. I can't get out of it. It's against you. It's sin. Turn to Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will save you from your sins. He wants all to come to repentance. Biblical repentance is a turning to God from sin. You can't get out of it, but you turn to God to be forgiven from it. You're acknowledging it. You're being honest with God. I am a sinner. I cannot get out of this bondage. I'm a slave to sin. I'm a sinner. I've sinned against you. And you turn to Jesus. Lord Jesus, save me. Set me free. He will save you. We know, as I shared in Acts chapter 17, therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is declaring to all men everywhere that all should repent. Acts 17, verse 30, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he's appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Luke chapter 24, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed throughout, he says, in his name, to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What is repentance? The word metanoia means a change of mind that's going to actually affect your behavior. I actually realize I am sinful and I need a Savior and I turn to him for salvation. I'm a sinner. What did Jesus call the people to do? Matthew 4.17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach and say, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark chapter 1, verse 14, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. And then here's what he says, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Sin is your problem, friend. And God is not desiring you to go to hell. He takes no pleasure. 
if you would acknowledge your sinfulness, honestly, no fake, no excuses, no nothing. Admit what God says about you and turn to Christ. He'll save you. Believe in his son Jesus, that he took your sins on his body on the cross. He died and rose from the dead. Folks, false teachers want you to live life without thinking of eternal consequences. They want you to live that way. And for believers, they don't want us to think of what we've been saved from and what we are going to because it motivates us to holy behavior and language. You see, Jesus came in grace, but he will come again in glory and judgment, and then there will be no time to repent. He's appointed man once to die and then the judgment. Will you repent before it's too late? Because the day of the Lord will come. It will come. Look in verse 10, back in Second Peter 3. But the day of the Lord will come. We've already looked at this in depth. We kind of pulled it apart when we looked at verse 7. The day of the Lord, the day of His, Yahweh's day, the day of His judgment against sin and sinners. It's going to come. Like a thief. How does a thief come? He comes unannounced at a time you don't think. Like a thief. It's going to come in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. It's going to come unannounced when you don't expect it. We see this in Matthew 24. Therefore be on the alert. You do not know the day your Lord is coming. Be sure if the head of the house had known the time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you too be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. First Thessalonians 5, while they're saying peace and safety, he's going to come just like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them. When Christ comes, he will fulfill his promise, reign on earth, but this present heavens and earth are going to be destroyed. They're going to go away with a loud roar. The elements, the ABCs of creation will be loosened with intense heat. The molecules in this present creation, I believe, will be just brought apart. The earth and its works, and of ten, will be burned up. He's going to destroy the present heavens and this earth, and unrepentant sinners will be eternally destroyed in hell. You see, hell is a reality. Matthew 25, 41, Jesus said, Depart from me, those in the left. Depart from me, you accursed ones, to eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 46, And these will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Mark 9, 47, If your eye causes you to stumble, cast it out. Better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes. This is a metaphor. Don't do that. I'm talking about getting rid of sin. To be cast into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The reality is, this present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Don't let this escape your notice. The only reason why this hasn't happened is God is patient and he is saving people. And we should be focused on the realities of his coming and what he's going to do. He's going to make everything right. We're going to see next time, we're not to focus primarily on the destruction. We're to focus on a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. We're going to see that. Brothers and sisters, we need a mindset on the things above, not the things of earth. I was convicted. 
I was convicted that, man, I am not thinking enough about what you've said. I am not remembering that we're only here because you are saving people, Lord Jesus. And when that's done, you're going to come. That's why we're here. This world is not our home. If you are comfortable here and you love it and like it, something's wrong. Confess. Because it is sin-tainted and will be destroyed. Let's turn to one last passage and let's close here. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. While you're turning there, remember that Abraham and Moses, they were focused on the heavenly things, a heavenly kingdom, a heavenly citizenship. We should be too. Don't be bogged down, brothers and sisters, in this life. Yes, we're here, but don't be focused on it to the exclusion of what God has declared. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though the outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For a momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, that's what's going on in your life. Don't focus on it. Don't ignore it, but don't focus on it. But at the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal. They're going to get burned up, by the way. But the things that are not seen are eternal. For we know that if this earthly tent, that's his body, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God. We're going to see that next week. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house, that's these bodies, we groan to be clothed longing for our eternal dwelling in heaven. We long for God consummating the reality of what he had said he is going to do. You see, when we find ourselves in his presence, it's not going to be as wretched, miserable sinners from a sin, in a sin-cursed world agonizing over our ragged state. It'll be glorious because we will be fully redeemed in His presence because of Christ.
now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.